Hallelujah. Father, as we have testified in song, we have not come to what may be touched at blazing fire, darkness and gloom in a tempest. In the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. From Hebrews, Lord, we read these words that summarize for us the conditions of our soul and the judgment that our sin deserved, which was revealed to us in this fearful moment on Sinai. But we have come instead, your scriptures go on, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As we read these reassuring words of the difference, the incarnation and the gospel and the arrival of Christ and his finished work and redemption gives us, we are reminded that his birth itself was announced by the innumerable, innumerable angels in festival, festival gathering who proclaimed from the heavens with the heavens opened to the shepherds in the field, unto you this day is born a baby, the second person of the Trinity, that is, born of a woman, a virgin, in the town of Bethlehem, according to prophecy, stooping low, condescending, taking on flesh, and with his call, the burden of our sin, and going on to Calvary to satisfy the atonement, the once-for-all sacrifice, and the bloodshed that was necessary in order for us to approach Mount Zion with joy, and to sit down at feast and covenant with the Lamb that was slain and with the majesty on high. Once the Holy Spirit has awakened our hearts to the very cost of the reconciliation that was purchased by Christ through this mighty work in an incarnation and on Calvary, signaled and sealed by His resurrection and ascension. This morning, as we look into your word to discover the glories and the treasures of this very, these very things unfolding according to your perfect decree from ages past on the landscape of history, may they be written on the tables of our hearts. May they encourage us and equip us to offer unto you praise that is more worthy and fitting for you, the Great One who has accomplished this mighty work, the Most High, the One Yahweh Covenant Keeper who will forever be enthroned as responsible for saving us from our sins through this mighty work that you accomplished through sending your only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior at the fullness of time to accomplish our redemption. And may your church be equipped to boldly join those heralding angels and the saints who've gone before and the witness of the apostles who preceded us and the saints who have followed them in the news of the gospel that we would be equipped to proclaim Christ is Lord, Christ has come. Christ is born, died, ascended, and now he ever rules and reigns to establish his kingdom. Lord, it is our privilege to join him in his great kingdom this day, even as we turn to his word. We pray that you would open our ears to receive it and that you would open our hearts to apply and open our eyes to see and all of this that you might be glorified and your church sanctified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. What a glorious and gracious opportunity we have to open the scriptures together to consider the words of the Lord. 
Today we'll turn again to Luke chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off in last week's message with the following verses, 26 through 38, will be our primary text today. If you recall last week, if you were here, the title of the message was A Priest and Descending Angels. We opened a four-part, at least, Advent series, tying together the dream of Jacob, heaven's staircase touching ground, and Jesus' prophecy of how you'll know this is happening, the heavens opened, and angelic activity. We're tying in that prophecy all the way back in Genesis 28 to the events of the Incarnation as they unfolded in the eyes and ears of those who were privileged to see, those whom the Spirit had opened their souls to receive the King of Kings. Today, a second in this series is entitled, A Virgin and Descending Angels. Last week, we considered Zechariah and the angelic, namely Gabriel, visitation of, the, of, he, of him while he was in the temple offering incense. And today, six months later, in the, in the chronicle or in the narrative, we find the same angel, Gabriel, visiting someone else, this time a virgin, of little consequence as far as man is concerned, but the favor of God was upon her. Then we find the announcement of her, of the uh, circumstances as, as they would affect her, and she indeed would be the mother of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The aim of this morning's message is to declare the glories of incarnation from day one. What is the incarnation? Let me not move forward without assuming, let me not move forward assuming everyone knows that definition. It means to take on flesh or to become flesh. The term incarnation or in flesh, as it were, simply describes an incredibly amazing reality and perhaps the most glorious miracle of all of history that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, literally took on flesh. And how did he do this, you might ask? He did so when he became a human being, tiny, in the con by the conceiving power of the Holy Spirit, in the womb of his mother Mary. And this moment of incarnation, this moment of conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, is in fact recorded in our text today. With that introduction in your Bible, open to Luke chapter 1. Out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand for the reading of His Scriptures today? Listen with your ears attuned as we consider Luke 1, 26-38. Here is the Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A virgin and descending angels, particularly Gabriel. As Jesus himself proclaimed, and as the foundation for the concept of this series, to Nathaniel, we recall John 1, 51. Heaven's staircase touching ground would be signaled by two things, Jesus says. You remember, from now on you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The two things that would signal heaven's staircase touching ground in the course of the incarnation and the events surrounding it would be, number one, divine revelation, the heavens open. Number two, angelic activity. These agents of God's purposes ascending and descending, receiving their commission and obediently following God's word to accomplish his will as it pertains to his sovereign decree to secure the redemption of his elect. So we are introduced to one of these emissaries, that means special envoys, those who are given a special duty or job on mission. We are introduced to one of these emissaries of glory, an angel, in the prophecy to Zechariah, of a son in his old age. The emissary, the ambassador, the one the, uh, that was charged with this duty to give him this prophetic announcement was Gabriel himself. The angel heralding the birth and conception of John the Baptist was Gabriel. And six months later, that same angel appears again to the Virgin Mary. And this is our passage today. This time he proclaims that the Son of the Most High, the eternal heir to the throne of David, and to the house of Jacob, Jesus himself will be born to this humble fiancé of Joseph, Joseph himself of the line of David. Gabriel is busy these days as we turn the first page of the Gospels. In this new covenant era, this angel, Gabriel, is busy. And little wonder as the incarnation is upon us. You recall last week, the last we read before the New Covenant page turned of Gabriel's activities was in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And here was the last recorded appearance of this angel in the days of the prophet before this New Covenant, a time of which we read today. Yet the word of God he delivered in all three cases, that is to Zechariah, to Daniel in days of old, 400 plus years prior, and to Mary, the word of God he delivered in all three cases indicates his ministry, that is his commission, special job given by God was to proclaim the answer to the heart cry for redemption and atonement of the elect from time immemorial. We noted last week how the similarity in the office that Daniel was serving in and Zechariah was serving in when Gabriel visited each man. Daniel was offering up the prayers of the people or prayers on behalf of the people and prayers for his own sins and the sins of the people when Gabriel intervened with the promise that in 400 plus years atonement would be accomplished by a king who would be cut off and would put an end to sin, Daniel 9. And then 400 plus years later, Zechariah, serving as a priest in the temple before the altar of incense, which is that place that was dedicated in temple worship, and even the furniture of the same, wherein that continually rising smoke of the burning sacrifice would represent the heart cry perpetually ascending before the throne of God, crying out, Redemption! Atonement! We are eternally lost without it. 
And so in this situation, Zechariah, in the same heart as Daniel, receives a messenger, is visited by an emissary of glory, Gabriel himself, saying, These days are upon you. He was mute, that is, Zechariah was, for a time because of his unbelief. He struggled to believe that God could give he and his wife a son in their old age. He should not have struggled because the testimony of God's covenant work preceded him in giving the aged Abraham and Sarah a child in days of old, and so now he would do it again. And in this instance, in this conception, and with this birth, would be the greatest of prophets so far who would announce the coming of Jesus Christ. So this is what happened to Zechariah. This is what was prophesied to Daniel. This is what would be fulfilled, be ultimately fulfilled through Mary. And so Gabriel is busy. In our text today, we are on the very threshold of heaven's stairway, touching ground, as it were, as the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, as Gabriel refers to him by those two terms in our text, is conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Later, Luke would write in chapter 15, verse 10, that there is great joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me ask a question in light of this text and what we celebrate in the Christmas season today. How much, how much excitement must there have been in the realms of glory when Gabriel comes back to heaven, as it were, bearing the report that Mary has submitted as the servant of the Lord to the miraculous pregnancy whereby sinners might be reconciled to a holy God through the gospel born by incarnation. How much joy? Well, perhaps we see a glimpse. Evidence of the rejoicing heavens will overflow to earth in just nine short months. In nine months after Jesus is born, the angelic hosts of heaven announce the birth of the Messiah over Bethlehem's manger. And now today, let us listen to Mary as she first hears this news. Here's a heading. Mary's visitation. So a virgin and descending angels. Mary's visitation by an angel in light of the following. Number one, the circumstances. You could say the circumstantial context. Number two, the prophetic content. And number three, supernatural conception. Context content, and conception. There is, it is difficult to pre... Well, let me say this. It is both easy and difficult to preach these texts. Easy in that there is so much here to proclaim that the sermons seem to write themselves. Difficult in that it's hard to keep them under three hours. So we'll see how I do today. Mary's visitation in the light of the circumstantial context. Luke 1, 26-30. Notice again our text and a few of the details woven in. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Every detail is significant. Verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. In the sixth month, in the city of Galilee, something was happening. A visitation of a virgin by the descending angel whose ministry was to announce the fulfillment of redemption and atonement and the coming Messiah. Gabriel was visiting the very one who was called to bear the Son of God. When and where did this take place? Well, to be precise, it took place six months after Gabriel had announced to Zechariah 
that his wife would also have a miraculous conception. In verse 22 of our same chapter, And when he came out, Zechariah, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, the people looking on. And he, Zechariah, kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. And did he have some news to tell his wife? Verse 24, Elizabeth received the news, we presume, better than Zechariah, as evidenced in the rest of this passage. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, there's a time reference, for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. For five months she contemplated, as it were, and kept herself hidden and submitted like Mary to the will of God and miraculous conception, giving an elderly lady a child. And this child growing in her womb would be the prophet who would come in the spirit of Elijah, announcing that Jesus was right around the corner. And then we pick up on our verse, first of our passage today, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee. So that is to say, six months after the angel had visited Gabriel, he visited the next lady. And we see reference to time frame as well in the next few verses, verse 39 after our text. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, listen, the baby leaped in her womb. Kids, who jumped in the womb of Elizabeth? John John the Baptist. So get this. How many months pregnant is Elizabeth? Like six, right? And Mary has just conceived. And when the two see each other in the presence of one another, John the Baptist jumps in the womb of Elizabeth. The baby leapt in her womb, and furthermore we read, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the prophecy to Zechariah? Many will rejoice in his birth. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. There will be joy and gladness. And it goes on to say, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. I submit to you, and it is my firm conviction, that this moment, when Jesus, pre-born in the womb, meets John, pre-born in the womb, this meeting is occasioned by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's certain in the text. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, began to prophesy and to worship in light of what's going on. But there's a baby leaping in her womb. And I suggest to you that at that moment, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So when these events take place is by divine design. And I want you to notice this, that the relationship and the ministry between Jesus and John the Baptist began before either of them were even born. You could say it this way, John the Baptist announced, Behold the Lamb of God, by jumping up in his mother's womb the moment that they met. Incredible. John, uh, six months in the womb, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the presence of Jesus, just days after the advent of the incarnation in the womb of Mary, John's first, if you will, messianic proclamation occurred before he was born. He announced the advent of God with us as he leapt 
in the presence of the preborn Lamb of God. So the timing of these events is significant, and that significance will only be further demonstrated as this same kind of thing happens outside the womb later. In the presence of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, points to him and says to all those listening, his disciples, he's been baptizing, preparing to meet the King and the kingdom of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When did John first realize this? Well, in a sense, you could say when he was but six months old in the womb of his mother. Profound events are going on. Where does this take place? That's a mention of the time reference and some of the significance around it. Where does this happen? Well, it happens in the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Is this significant? Yes. And to prove as much, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 9. Will you with me for a moment? These are passages that we may be familiar with. I trust you are because they relate to Christmas and it's, they're popularly referred to. But some of these connections, as you dig, appear much deeper than the first glance or the superficial read might offer. And Isaiah 9 is one of these passages. Beginning in verse 1, the prophet declares, again, hundreds of years before Christ, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. For in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way by the sea the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee, this rejected area, which included Zebulun and Naphtali, whose legacy since the Assyrian overthrow of the northern kingdoms had been marked by judgment, by exile, and by shame, was about to experience redemption. That is to say, you can put it this way, heaven's staircase will touch ground at the spark, the moment of incarnation. Where? in the place of captivity and rejection, the place that stood for the consequences of sin, the place that was marked uh, with the shame of exiles and Gentiles in Galilee. That's where Jesus would be incarnated. That's where the sovereign conception of Christ will take place, thus fulfilling the prophecies of old, even Daniel chapter 9, that he would make glorious the Galilee of the nations, the way by the sea, Zebulun, Naphtali. And then, of course, I believe it's Matthew chapter 4. Later, Matthew acknowledges this. Not only is Jesus conceived in this region, but this is where he begins his ministry as well. And upon those who lay in darkness, a great light has dawned. He recognizes the prophecy being fulfilled, which is Isaiah 9-2. Later, Isaiah 9-6, same passage. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To who is a child born? To who is a son given? To those in shame, in darkness, to those in exile, to those who had abandoned, to the Gentile, to those who realized that they are worthy of God's judgment because of their horrible sin to those in Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the nations. To them, a child is born. To them, a son was literally given, conceived in the womb of the virgin in that same region, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. A new king is in town. Tiglath-Pileser, whoever the guy was, I think that's his name, of Assyria who declared himself authoritative and brought on all these shameful conditions, 
He, his throne, his legacy is overtaken, overthrown. He's kicked out. A new king's in town. For to us who are born in sin, to, the, to those of us who are exiled and under the consequences and judgment and shame of what our, our transgression of God's law hath wrought, to us a child is born, a son is given, and a, the government shall be upon his shoulder. A new king is in town. And this king is not shameful. He's not a tyrant. He's not wicked. He's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And in light of his reign and his rule, those who follow him and trust in him and believe in him and cling to him and obey him will forever be united to a holy God, never to suffer the shame, reproach of that exile status of Zebulun, Naphtali, Gentile, Galilee anymore. This is when these events took place. This is where these events took place. And let me give you another detail from Luke chapter 1 in verse 27. Who is this happening to? This is Mary. She's described as a virgin to a virgin betrothed, which means engaged. And of course, engagement in scriptural times was as binding in marriage, though the marriage had not been consummated. A divorce would be required to break it, the historians tell us. So to a virgin betrothed, engaged, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Let me submit, in one verse, we have this paradox, this messianic paradox reconciled. The Messiah must be two things at the same time, the second Adam and the son of David. He must be the second Adam in that he is born not of sin, not with original sin, the blood poisoning and the blood stain of original sin that has plagued every child of Adam. Jesus Christ must be of extraordinary birth. The Messiah must be the second Adam. But he must also be of the house and lineage of Jacob. That is to say, he must also be of the son of David. And this paradox is resolved in one single verse of our text today. Because Mary, Joseph, was of the son of David, and Mary was a virgin, a virgin betrothed to a son of David shall conceive and bear a son. And who would that son be? The second Adam, the head of the covenant of grace, and the son of David, the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the covenant proclaimed that upon the throne of David, one will reign forever and ever, and his kingdom will be without end. When and where? A second Adam and a son of David. And then Emmanuel grace extended to Mary. We see her reaction, don't we? And he came to her. This reminds us of Zechariah. I will remind you of how the first thing he felt. Well, kids, maybe I should ask you. When the angel visited Zechariah, what did he feel? What was his first reaction, kids? When the angel visited Zechariah, what was his reaction? Was he happy? Was he sad? What did he feel? Fear is correct. The word says he was troubled. And the angel says, do not fear. Notice the similarity in verse 28. He came to her. Gabriel came to Mary. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Once again, as a child of Eve, as a daughter of Adam, Mary, like every fallen sinner, because of the consciousness of humanity that we talked about before, angels, since the fall, represent guardians of God's sanctuary presence. 
They stand, as it were, for all of time with a flaming sword, armed and dangerous against any impostor who would transgress the habitation of the Holy One and bring their sin in His presence. That is to say, since the fall, the reaction of man, we mentioned last week, to the presence of the Holy has been the same, terror and fear. Just like we read in Hebrews 12 in the prayer this morning, that mountain that can't be touched is a terrifying reality. Because in the presence of the holy, we who have sin that stains us right down to the core, we must be judged for God's holiness to be maintained. So right here, even in Mary's reaction, I suggest to you is a refutation of the so-called Catholic doctrine of immaculate conception, which means Mary, by some extenuating circumstances, was kept free from the stain of original sin. No. Mary, though laudable and noble, and God's favor was upon her, nevertheless was a sinner like you and me, and therefore it was natural for her to sense fear and terror in the presence of the holy. But notice the reassuring words, the same ones given to Zechariah and to all who are under the blood of the covenant, the covenant yet to come. He said, Do not fear, Mary, for you have found favor with God. How could Mary find favor with God? The same way Jacob found favor with God. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will accompany you back to the land. The same way Zechariah found favor with God. The Lord is with you. If you recall, Zechariah was troubled. Fear fell upon him. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. The answer is Emmanuel. Kids, remind us. What does Emmanuel mean? Shout it out. Shout it out, kids. God with us. That's correct. If God is with us, that is to say, if the conditions for restoring the relationship broken in sin between a holy God and a sinner, if that promise of covenant relationship is assured, then we need not fear in the presence of the holy. And this is why the book of Hebrews says that we have access into the holy of holies, a place once reserved only for the high priest, because we have a high priest that went before us. And so it says, through his torn flesh, as it were, and this was signaled by the torn veil in the temple, we have access into the holy presence, communion, fellowship, the table of the Lord. Because of Emmanuel, God with us. And all this would be accomplished in the incarnation through the one whose very name, Jesus, among other things, is Emmanuel, which, kids, remind us one more time, means what? Very good. Emmanuel grace is extended to Mary. Mary, there is grace upon her, but notice the distinction. This was grace unto Mary. This is not grace of Mary. We have no grace of ourselves. Not Mary, not any daughter, not any son of Adam and Eve. But we do have grace unto us if the Emmanuel promise is realized in our experience. That is, through Jesus Christ, the bridge, the staircase, the way of atonement, the death that paid for our sins, if He is our Savior, our Messiah, if He is our hope of redemption, then we do have grace unto us. Just as Mary, just as Noah, just as Daniel, just as Zechariah had unto them. So that's the circumstantial context of Mary's visitation. Second major point, let us consider the prophetic content of Gabriel's words. This would be 31 through 33. And behold... Gabriel speaking, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name, kids, Jesus, correct. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Perhaps you notice that signal word, which I submit connects this revelation to Mary, to the revelation of Jacob all the way back in Genesis 28. You can turn back there with me for a moment. Since our series is predicated on the fulfillment of Jacob's great vision, uh, I've at least been more attuned to some of these connections. When Zechariah begins his prophetic portion, the content of his message to Mary, he says, Behold. And of course, that word in our translation is identical, and I would say rightly so, appropriately so, with the occasion of Jacob's dream, where he and the reader are both called to behold. Genesis 28, 12. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. <clears throat> and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Three beholds right there. We've gone over them in the past. A ladder, angels of God ascending and descending, and over and above it all, Yahweh, the Lord standing. No, this was Moses calling us the reader, pay attention, behold. And so when we hear the author of Luke, you know, or Luke himself speaking in his first chapter, and we hear behold, pay attention, perhaps there's a connection. Perhaps, perhaps this is the ladder, the staircase touching ground in the announcement of the incarnation, the miracle conception and the womb of a virgin. Later, Jacob is called to behold in verse 15 back in Genesis 28. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There it is, Emmanuel, God with us. I will be with you. I will not leave you. Four beholds. Behold, a ladder. Behold, angels ascending and descending. Behold, the Lord of it all. And behold, Emmanuel. I will leave you. I will be with you. I will never leave you and never forsake you. So we turn over a page, as it were, of covenant history, and we read in Luke 1, 30, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid. And then 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This angel that has descended down the ladder, as it were, to announce heaven's staircase touching ground in the womb of the virgin whose condition, and the conditions of the situation make it possible for the second Adam and the son of David to be born. When we hear, pay attention, behold, it connects us to the prophecies of old, which would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, as we mentioned before, the first chapter of John would say to his servant Nathaniel, you think this is awesome? From now on, you'll see the heavens open and angels of God ascending and descending upon me, upon the Son of Man, thus signaling in the incarnation the fulfillment and meaning of Jacob's ancient dream, Yahweh condescending. You shall call his name what, kids? Oh, yeah, another name for Jesus, though? Oh, I'm sorry, I just gave it away there. You shall call his name Jesus, verse 31. Jesus means Jehovah saves, some have said. A little more precisely, though, Yahweh is salvation. You shall call his name Yahweh is salvation. 
And of course, this corresponds to Jacob's dream. Above this ladder, the Lord of the connection between heaven and earth is Yahweh, that high, holy name for God, the covenant keeper, the self-sufficient one, the I am that I am. And now Yahweh is condescending as it were. Yahweh will be incarnate. Yahweh will save. Jesus, God taking on human flesh, walking among us, the second person of the Trinity, will accomplish in this sovereign, supernatural act, moving heaven and earth and bridging the gap between the holy and the sinner. He will do it. This is Yahweh condescending. Behold, Mary. Covenant fruition. He not only will be the Son of the Most High, which is God, the Son, of course, and the Lord, but the Lord will give him to him the throne of his father David. Touching upon what we mentioned before, he is the son of Adam and the son of David. This is a fulfillment of the covenants of old, particularly the covenant of David. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have read of David and his legacy, what the prophet Nathan declared. That is, Nathan, in this case, was the emissary of God's word. Speaking of events and fulfillments that would not happen in David's lifetime, neither in Solomon's, but some point on the future would come to pass, he proclaims the following. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days, prophet speaking to David, are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Who is this, Solomon? Well, Provisionally in the first instance, yes, but more. Verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What is the name that Gabriel gives Jesus in Luke chapter 1? The Son of the Almighty, the Son of the Most High. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So now we're speaking provisionally of Solomon and those in the line. But verse 16 goes on, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So I've been listening to the Bible uh, during my first, the first half of my day this year, I took this listen to the Bible till noon challenge each day. So I've gone through it several times. And one thing you can't help but notice in the Chronicles and the Kings and so forth is the contrast between David and his children. Do you remember when David had the opportunity to take the life of Saul, who had transgressed God's law in so many ways, had chased him down, had you know, had disregarded the covenant that David was to be the rightful successor. Every opportunity David had to enact revenge and even to defend himself, he said no. Why? Because he recognized that Saul was God's anointed. This was a noble characteristic of David's knowledge of the covenant, that more, he took more seriously the word of God than he did even his own life and plight. But notice the contrast between that and his son's. Not only did David's sons not respect God's anointed, but they rebelliously disregarded the terms of the covenant all the way to their own father, where his sons and a few of them tried to stage a coup and to get the throne from him and all kinds of dysfunction. So if you had been born in that time, and you had heard news of the prophecy by Nathan to David, 
that his kingdom would flourish and grow and God would raise up a son after him. You might think with Solomon, hey, we're getting there. Riches and wealth and wisdom are pouring in to this kingdom. But very shortly after, you would be faced with the kingdom divided and all kinds of character flaws and worse. And then things would degrade and degrade until finally exile. And you would think to yourself, where is one with a heart like David and better? Where the dynasty must be lost. You would be tempted to give up all hope. Who is the one who will honor the covenant of old? Surely not David's immediate sons. Would there be a son in the future who would turn the tables and restore our hope in this covenant promise? And the answer is yes. But you would have to wait hundreds of years in order for it to be clear to the person who, uh, by faith, would look forward to this day. Nevertheless, in these words to Mary, we have the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He, Gabriel says, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And finally, this eternal kingdom will dawn. 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and all of his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Here, Jesus is the fulfillment of the house of Jacob and the kingdom of David. I'll just remind you two aspects of covenant prophecy associated with each one of those figureheads. With Jacob, as with Abraham, he was promised that his descendants would be as numerous as kids. Can you remind us? So Abraham's and Jacob's kids would be like two things. Kids, you recall? They would be as many as... Very good. Sand in the seashore and... Stars in the sky. So the promise to Jacob reiterated in Genesis 28 was the promise to Abraham, his grandfather, that one day your lineage, your children, would be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky, as the kids reminded us today. But what was the promise to David? Well, further covenant revelation revealed to David that in the future, not only would the population be of the kingdom be too many to count, but the power and the authority and the endurance of this kingdom will be forever and ever. Um, kids, maybe you read some fantasy or some history of monarchical age, you know, times when kings ruled the land. And what's that common thing that people cry out? You know, the king's there, he's got his crown on, his robes, all his courts are assembled. Maybe he just won a battle. The people are super pumped and they're in this parade and they're crying out, long, is anyone? Long live the king. Every cry from the heart of everyone who looked to a mere human monarch from ages past all the way up till now fell short of their hope. That cry in the human heart, long live the king, I suggest to you underneath it is this cry for peace on earth, goodwill toward men, for just law, a right order, for a peaceful society, and for things to be right once again, for trials to be overcome, for provision to be satisfied, for prosperity to attend our way in the future. But every king short of Jesus Christ has come and gone. And though the cry of the people who may, may have placed their hope in him was long live the king, nevertheless he died. Not so with Jesus Christ. Eternally lived the king, and on the day of his resurrection, never to die again, 
and ascending before the throne at the right hand of the Father, fulfilling Daniel's other prophecy in chapter 7, that before the Ancient of Days the Son of Man would rise to receive as his inheritance the kingdoms of the earth. So Jesus, in his glorious ascension, coronation, ceremony, satisfied the cry of the human heart through the ages, long live the King, and more so, eternally lives the King. So in this prophecy that Gabriel gives to Mary, we have two things, uh, the fruition of two covenant promises coming to pass. The population of the kingdom will be too many to number, and the power and authority and reach and realm of this kingdom will be eternal. Hallelujah. This is the circumstantial context. What I just presented is the prophetic content. And then let's close with 34 through 38, supernatural conception. Mary's visitation, heaven's stairway, if you will, extended to Mary in light of supernatural conception. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? You'll notice again a similar question that Zechariah raised. Zechariah was a little incredulous. I am old, so how will this be? Mary, I'm not married, so how will this be? It seems impossible from our perspective. Mary, Zechariah, and us. And I'd suggest to you that when we read of the kingdom consummate and the circumstances that surround us, we try to reconcile the two, it seems impossible. How will this be? We might ask of the Lord in our own days of doubt. Well, the angel answered her, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I want you to notice that in answer to Mary's question, the angel is pointing to works of God that he has already accomplished in the past and connecting them to the work of God he will accomplish in her womb. And in the first instance, he says, the Most High, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, how will this happen? The same way the creation of the world in the first place was conceived in the very beginning. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, among other things, declaring to us the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the waters and creation begins the Latin ex nihilo, out of nothing. The land is separated from the waters. And the, cre- and the creatures eventually populate both land and sea. And on day six, man was created in all the glories of creation. How did that happen? Out of nothing. How will this be? How will this be since I'm a virgin? How will this be since there's nothing in the first place? The answer is the same. The Holy Spirit will come. In the case of creation itself, he hovered over the face of the waters. And out of nothing, creation was birthed. And then we see a parallel, do we not, with our text today? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, as it were, hover over you, as it were. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Not a son by ordinary generation, but a son of God. These pic- the picture of the Holy Spirit hovering, the Holy Spirit moving as if by wind, breathing into Adam and he becomes a living, breathing person. Accompanying the exodus, in the exodus, the Israelites by way of cloud and fire, by breathing, as it were, the wind of the Holy Spirit over the waters all night long at the precipice of the Red Sea and making a way, the water standing in two heaps for God's people to go through. All this happened, these impossible situations, by the same power. The Holy Spirit hovering over. The Holy Spirit visiting. The Holy Spirit attending the way of God's people. There's even a picture of this in Noah's Ark 
where he sends forth a dove, which will be a picture of the Spirit later, descending upon Jesus, anointing him for his ministry at his baptism unto probation. And this dove that Noah sends out, what does it bring back? It brings back the promise of a new world in the form of a branch. And the dove, as you imagine, this bird on the decks of Noah is hovering over the face of the waters, searching for evidence of a new earth. And so this dove brings back proof that God's word will be fulfilled in the form of a branch. It's not long after that Noah and his family inhabits the new world. And so it is the Holy Spirit goes forth over a virgin womb and hovers and entrance into the future new world of his redemptive purposes is accomplished by his miraculous work to create out of nothing, ex nihilo, something, even the conception of the second person of the Trinity and the womb of a virgin who will go on to accomplish redemption. This is something that is spirit wrought, this supernatural conception. The heavens will open. And the Lord will personally accomplish His will via the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The heavens opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon Mary. And that which was conceived in her womb was by the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who breathed life into Adam. Who created this world in the first place. Who provided safe passage for Noah. Who guided His people into the promised land. The same Spirit who indwells you, saint, if you hang on with all your heart to the very truth of what I'm proclaiming today as your hope of salvation. Now our way, our journey is fraught with trials well. Do we think it was easy to be married? We find that it was not. Was it easy to be any of God's people during their particular call? We find that it is not. But if the promise of the attending Holy Spirit, even the indwelling Holy Spirit, is ours, then we need not fear. Because Emmanuel, God is with us, even in us, granting to us safe passage to the realms of glory one day, the fulfillment of God's kingdom and purposes. Furthermore, something in the past that should give Mary confidence is a testimony of resurrection power in the case of dead wounds. 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And kids, can you name someone else who is barren in the Bible and God gave her kids? Hannah. Hannah, That's one. Somebody else? Leah. Leah, That's another. Somebody else? We've got Hannah. We've got Leah. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. I'll take one more. One more. Sarah. Sarah, Rachel. And I think that's all I had on my list with the exception of the wife of Manoah, which was Samson's dad. Samson's mother was barren as well. In all these cases, the Spirit of God moved upon a dead womb, and resurrection power was evident in that, even with Mary's relative, Elizabeth, she in her old age, just like Sarah of old, the covenant mother of old, conceived and bore a son. This is the testimony of the covenant, that is, miraculous conception, marching through the pages of history. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Manoah's wife, Hannah, Elizabeth, Mary. Awesome. If God has worked supernaturally, displaying his resurrection power in all of these, then truly the miraculous conception defying the circumstances is the testimony through the ages of the covenant. And if she even has a relative, Elizabeth, who has experienced this power, then Mary's heart ought to be moved in faith 
a virgin shall also, even she herself, conceive and bear a son. After all, it was prophesied. We won't turn there today, but you could on your own time. Isaiah 7, verse 4. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. In close of this message today, Mary's response is notable. She has received this overwhelming message. Gabriel himself, personal visitation, emissary of glory, the only third time that I know of, recorded in Scripture, where this guy was commissioned to do such a thing. And it turns out, despite being a virgin, she is going to bear the Son of God, the Son of David. He will be great. He will be called Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. He will be our Emmanuel. He will fulfill the promises and the hopes of old. His kingdom will never end. And here she is, a young, unassuming, humble woman faced with this most incredible prophecy one could possibly imagine. And in this context, she responds, verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We see as this passage closes Mary's example of submission and faith. As the Lord has providentially made known to her, like supernaturally made known to her, her journey, the journey that she is called to and must walk. So she submitted to the Lord, despite the seemingly impossible and despite the trial that it represented. I am your servant. Submission and faith. Saints, God has providentially, in the circumstances of your life, revealed to you, partially, the course that you must walk. And it is often attended by trial, difficulty, even the fellowship of Christ's own sufferings. But in spite of this, we have promises like Mary had that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for the task and the goal is worth the cost. It cannot even be compared to it. So will you submit? Will you submit to the Lord and recognize no matter the difficulty, nevertheless, in the gospel, in Christ, you have received favor. The Lord is with you. Even as the Lord has providentially made known to us that the journey we must walk is difficult and at times seems impossible, even so, He has revealed to us the way of salvation in the preaching of the gospel. And our question, the question by way of application and close of this sermon, is have you surrendered to the gospel? Have you surrendered to God's will in your life? His providential hand be in blessing or bitter providence? Have you surrendered and said, Behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. History proves, the Bible proves, the covenant proves that you can trust the Word of God. And you have proven over and over again that you can't trust yourself. This is a lesson again since Eden. What will you believe? The covenant promises of God or the circumstances in your own short-sighted analysis of them? If Mary had chosen the short-sighted analysis, then we wouldn't be here today fellowshipping and worshiping our Savior and Lord. But because God extended His grace to her, softened her heart, and gave her this submission and faith, as an example for us, although difficult, although seemingly impossible, she simply said, 
Not my will, but thine be done in so many words. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God's word has come to us in the proclamation of the gospel even this, this day. And insofar as it has been rightly divided and accurately proclaimed, our response ought to be the same. I am your servant. Be it unto me according to your word. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Father, we thank you for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that men have seen with their own two eyes as a result of the greatest miracle in all of history, the incarnation itself. Father, as we step back through the perspective of Scripture and see all of history in light of your sovereign plan, it is amazing indeed. It is spectacular to be sure. But nevertheless, tomorrow we will wake up with the challenge of facing our day and an uncertain, as far as we're concerned, future. Would you impress upon our hearts that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if He would dwell in us, would quicken us to have faith and submission, modeled by the saints of old who simply said, Your will, not mine, be done, that we might walk in the knowledge of the truth, in obedience of the faith, in a manner worthy of the call? And Father, if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not surrendered in the first place and placed their faith in Jesus Christ and turned from their sin and believe that in Him alone is the bridge between them and a happy future, I pray that they would repent, that they would hit their knees, that they would cry out to their Messiah, and that they would join the submission and faith of the saints of old who turned from their understanding and sin and said, Not my will, but thine be done. On the promise of the covenant, on the hope of the gospel, I stake my future. O Father, encourage us with these words. Strengthen your church. Equip us for the call, we pray, that we might be found worshiping you with the hosts of heaven and the saints of old upon your return or when you call us home. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.